0: So tonight I'm going to speak about the last of the four Brahmaviharas, uh, equanimity. <clears throat> I think the first time that I had a kind of transmission of what equanimity is was when I was hearing Jack Kornfield tell one of his stories. He, he always tells many wonderful teaching stories, and particularly in the early days of my practice. He told one story that has resonated with me for a very long time, which I want to share. Probably some of you have heard it. A long time ago in ancient Asia, there was a very fierce samurai who was wandering the land, and he was going around and Really ravaging and killing people, really making a mess of things. And he came upon a Zen monastery. And at this monastery was one of the great Zen masters. And this samurai burst into the monastery, found the Zen master sitting there, and went up to him with his sword, and he said to the Zen master, he said, I could run this sword right into you without blinking an eye." And the Zen master sat there and looked at him and said, and I could have the sword run into me without blinking an eye. And I remember that, because I thought, wow, is that really possible? <laughs> could, could somebody really be like that? <laughs> I mean, I still wonder, I'm not really sure, I would like to believe that it might be possible, but it certainly sets up the image for us of what true equanimity is. An equanimity that is an unshakable balance of mind that nothing can disturb, not even a fierce samurai ready to put a sword through your heart, whatever. Not even that. It's an equanimity that is free of any kind of attachment for, for this or for that. A free state of mind. A state of mind that is rooted in insight. And this is actually a fairly important piece around equanimity, is understanding that it is rooted in insight. In the text, the Buddha says, equanimity is supported by the wholesome. And what that means is that equanimity is supported by insight. It's not an equanimity that one can fall into out of uh, unknowingness or confusion, which is a kind of denial about the way things are. And there might be kind of a, a inner calm that come about because one just doesn't have their eyes open. But it's an equanimity with our eyes completely wide awake. So we're not afraid to look. We're not afraid to see what's true. And in that insight, we have deep insight into the way things are. We can, we can see things in their true nature. We know that all things are insubstantial, that there is really, truly nothing to hold on to, that everything is fleeting. There's nothing that has any stability, lasting stability to give us any real fulfillment. And this is the insight that deepens for us that keeps us, as we deepen into this understanding, into this wisdom of the nature of things, we can't reach out and hold on in the same way that we have in the past. The Buddha said, One knows what is peaceful and sublime is equanimity one knows that that is what is going to bring the most uh, peace and, su- and the, and the, and the uh, experience of the sublime, is by understanding and deepening into equanimity. Here's a, mm, I guess these are kind of enlightenment poems from the 8th century Chinese Zen master Layman Peng who wrote my daily affairs are quite ordinary but I'm in total harmony with them I don't hold on to anything don't reject anything nowhere an obstacle or conflict who cares about wealth and honor even the poorest thing shines my miraculous power and spiritual activity drawing water and carrying wood so we hear many stories. We, we hear many poems of pointing to this exquisite non-attachment in the way of things. And, and in that it's so easy, in the same way we've talked about the other Brahma Viharas, it's so easy then to begin to set up ideas and images for ourselves about what it means to be equanimous and then have that idea which then we can set up uh, judgments and uh, uh, we can condemn ourselves for what we see in ourselves and say, I'm so far away from being a quantumist. Look at me. Look at my mind. Look at the way I am. And again, I think it's a, it can be a kind of trap these images for us. Because until we really do look deeply at our experience and and begin to investigate what equanimity is, we may not really know. We can be confused and distracted by these images. I mean, sometimes we get distracted by the Buddha statues because Buddha statues are always emanating this still equanimity, you know, without, you know, the, the, the unmoving mind. And then we think, well, I should be like that, but my mind's moving all over the place. So I think that we need to look more deeply into what is equanimity really? What, what is that state for us? Sometimes equanimity is uh, is also called dispassion dispassion, and it can imply a kind of lack of engagement with life, a a, a pulling back or a disconnection with things uh, and and we 've all probably reflected on and thought about how our meditation practice can actually be used as an escape from life for us, as an escape from really having to be, having to confront the difficulties in our life. And when we use words like dispassion, it can seem like we have to get to this place that's very cooled out, where we're not really feeling anything or, or where, the, where the passion doesn't arise within us anymore. It's this, very cooled-out state. People have so many ideas. We have so many ideas about what it means, the, the goal of our, of our practice here. When I was looking on the Internet, I, was, uh, I came across this dialogue that uh, was writ- written out in, on one of the websites about uh, one, this one person's impression about... Uh, Buddhist Meditation Practice, which I want to read to you. It's this little piece, this little clip. said, If you are an avowed Buddhist, you get to sit by while people are cruel and unjust to each other, and you don't get to do anything, but perhaps if your despair is deep enough, emulate yourself with gasoline. It is all dreamlike, with no consequences in the Buddhist model, and what matters to the Buddhist is equanimity. In other words, inaction and silence in the face of injustice and cruelty and the suppression of passion, which is seen as the great evil. And it's, you know, people have have these kinds of impressions about what our practice is about. And you can really hear from where you sit, you can hear the confusion in that comment. I think for someone who really doesn't want to disconnect from the world, they might think that the practice will bring about that disconnection and there will be a fear of disengagement. And I've I've heard this from from many people and many of my activist friends who just kind of don't get what we're really doing sometimes, what the practice is really pointing to. And I think for those who want to protect themselves from the hardship of life, uh, want to find a way to disconnect, want to find a way to escape and to detach themselves. And then kind of, probably you've seen some people, they kind of hold up their detachment as kind of a medal. Oh, I'm so detached. I'm so you know, unbothered by everything. And I don't think that either one of these it's really pointing to what this practice is about, what these teachings are about. Sometimes, and I know for myself, that I had a sense that equanimity meant entering into some kind of a, a void, some kind of a voidness where nothing would touch me, against kind of that, some kind of a, a protective field where um, I would no longer feel anything. You know, again, that kind of cooled-out state where, where nothing would touch me. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that, you know, thinking about this kind of state feels, yeah, wouldn't that be wonderful not to, be, not to have to feel pain anymore or feel, feel the difficult part of life anymore? And yet, not even that. Over this month, I've been talking to a friend, um, emailing back and forth. This friend who's really been suffering from very, very bad migraines uh, m- much of her life, and she—we've just been exploring again her relationship to these these very bad migraines that she's having. And I can, and I, and of course, when there's that kind of strong physical pain, which can very much. Uh, uh, her the functioning of one's life it's like an illness or a disease where one is really um, crippled by this and so, so looking at her, her relationship to that and, and of course she wants to go to a place where she doesn't feel it find a place where, where she can be protected from that, from that pain but where is the equanimity in that? How does one find equanimity right in the face of these very very painful, or difficult places? This has really been my Cohen, my spiritual question for a long time. Is because of these kind of confusing messages that that one can get about you know what 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 is it? Are we supposed to be very very cooled out, or or is there a way that we can be engaged but not be so bothered by all of this? I had an experience um, about five or six years ago that I'd like to share with you, which I didn't know this at at the time, but turned out to be a very deep investigation into equanimity for me. And I was uh, participating in A vision quest which is a Native American ritual for uh, I think it was for a four-day vision quest where I was with just a few other people where I was um, uh, going to engage in this ritual where I go out into the wilderness and stay there for four days without any food or even any water and just taking a just a, a couple of plastic tarps and uh, a, a sleeping bag and, and just the one set of clothes that I had had on, and really you know kind of pushing myself into this very difficult situation. The wilds that I was going to on this vision quest were was in England, and england doesn 't have <laughs> A lot of wilderness, a lot of wilds, but we did find this one place on the moor, which was very desolate, very isolated. And I uh, uh, went through this whole ritual that one goes through: walk into a kind of a circle, uh, does a there's a, a Native American blessing that's done, and then one enters into the vision quest, which is like leaving the world, going out of the world into this quest. And I found my spot. I was, I was alone, and I found a spot where there was a, a, a stream, so I did have some water that I could take and a little pump that I could pump some water out. So that was, that was how I had water for the time. But it actually turned out, when, when I was leaving, that it was, it was raining, which it does a lot in England, and it actually didn't really let up for almost three or four days. It was not just rain, but a lot of rain, heavy rain, and um, I think in the time I was out there, there might have been, oh, not very many windows of sunshine, maybe just a couple of hours once, I remember, or twice, and my boots were wet as soon as I walked out. They were not waterproof, and fortunately, it wasn't too cold in the the high 60s, And there was nothing to do, you know, there was nothing to do. Fortunately, I had my meditation experience, so I found myself doing a lot of walking meditation, back and forth, back and forth. But what happened is by the second day, I started to feel quite sick. I wasn't eating, I was wet, I was cold, I was pretty miserable, I wasn't really happy to be there, it wasn't that much fun there wasn't anything to do, I didn't have any distractions, just like you. No distractions. (laughs) But it was very, really miserable. And and then being sick because I wasn't eating and and then at night when I would lie down I was under a tree and with my tarps and it was wet and the snails were, the snails didn't know that I was any different than the trees or the grass and I had snails in my hair and you know it was just very, very uncomfortable. And then by the by the third day I was really sick. And I remember walking back and forth and back and forth saying, what would it mean to be equanimous in this situation? I had no idea because I was absolutely miserable. So I just kept walking back and forth. And I want to really understand what it would mean to be equanimous in this situation. Because I had the sense that if I was really equanimous, if I really understood equanimity, then I would not feel miserable and I would be able to just be walking in the fields and being sopping wet and cold and hungry and sick and all that and be in bliss. <laughs> but somehow if I really got to the equanimity that everything would just turn to light and bliss and rapture and it would all disappear. And that would be the answer. And I just kept walking back and forth and back and forth. What would it mean? What would it mean to be equ- equanimous in this situation? And then I thought, well, of course, why would I think that there's a way not to actually feel what I'm feeling? What I'm feeling is miserable. It's like that. That is like, I don't need to find a way to transcend the feeling. It's just to feel it. Feel how sick I am. Feel how wet I am. How cold I am. How unhappy I am. Just go into that and feel it. And I just kept dropping into it and dropping into it and dropping into it. And then I really started to understand that the equanimity is about not adding on more struggle not adding on more, uh, more story about poor me and what a horrible thing and why am I doing this and I could leave and what, what's happening and this is terrible, but just to be there, just to feel it. And something really shifted for me at that point because it was a, a, a very deep understanding. And, in a way, uh, I was talking a few talks back about the second arrow and in a way, it's, it's, it's really understanding the function of that second arrow, of what we bring to the experience that is so unnecessary and extra, how the mind gets caught with that whole fabrication of the story. I mean, the story is there, clearly. You know, Here I am out in the, you know, alone on the third day of this vision quest and feeling horrible without any way out. I mean, that's sort of the the basic storyline, but yet I could see how I could make it that much more difficult for myself. And I just kept staying with that reflection and staying with that reflection and knowing, of course, this is the way I would be. Any person who was in this situation would feel very much the same way. And then in in reflecting on that, then then my heart was able to open to some compassion some love, some openness to the whole situation. Now, of course, this was an artificial situation. You know, I, was, I could leave at any moment. Sometimes we're in situations where it's actually this difficult, and we can't leave. We can't get out of it. So in a way, this was um, a way for me to set that up, but it was still knowing that I could leave situation. And it gave me an opportunity to really deeply reflect right in the whole, the whole kind of gestalt of the situation to find out what, what is it when I'm not adding anything more to this. The middle of the fourth day I actually did leave because it was too much. And there is a way that you can actually leave the quest without breaking the quest, by just going to a place that was actually much more, uh, which, which would allow me to finish the quest. And I uh, went down to the base camp. I found my guide, and he looked at me, and he said, I was wondering how you were doing out there. And he gave me some hot miso soup, and that was the most amazing miso soup I ever had in my whole life. It was just like nothing made me happier than that, bowl, that little bowl of miso soup. And then I went up to a little tent, and I was covered in a tent, and I, then I was in bliss. <laughs> then I knew what bliss really was. And then I finished my quest the next day. So equanimity, and not running away from the way things are. We're not not running away from present moment experience. But it's a direct confrontation with this phenomenal world that we are are part of. The bombardment of the phenomenal world that makes up our life. The direct confrontation with this. There's a there's a story um, of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment uh, when Mara comes to him. Mara, the the god of 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 death and craving and uh, hatred, lust. And I want to read this little passage to you um, because, in a way, in a way, it really shows what again, we are up against when we are looking at this aspect of our mind. And this is the, when the, the Buddha was under the bodhi, bodhi tree. The Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree on the immovable spot and away was approached by Mara. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before him, 12 leagues to the right, 12 leagues to the left, and in the rear, as far as to the confines of the world. It was nine leagues high. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder, and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness. The antagonists hurled against the Bodhisattva, but the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gautama's ten perfections. Mara then deployed his, his daughter's desire, longing, and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged uh, the, bodhisattva, the, bodhi- the bodhisattva's right to be sitting on the immovable spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily, and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crakes but the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars so that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world's scattered garlands. So I don't think it's en- that anything stops. I don't think that we enter a void, hmm? but rather perhaps there is a kind of protection There is a protection, but the protection is wisdom. The protection is insight. The Buddha turns to Mara many times in the text and says, I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. And I love that one line, and I use it so often myself when I have these difficult mind states trying to annoy me and distract me and bother me, I, I can at times just say, I see you, Mara. I see you. I'm not going to get pulled in by you. I'm not going to get distracted by you. And in a way, it's the same thing as putting my hand down and touching the earth and saying, I have a right to be here and to be unbothered, to find that still immovable place within myself. It's easier to be equanimous certainly when we don't have a lot rubbing on our consciousness when we come into conditions such as this, which which really help support our meditation and our wisdom and our insight, we can feel more fully what it really means to be equanimous. We start to feel more of that, um, the stillness within us that can actually turn towards these arising and passing phenomena and, and not get so pulled by them, not, not get so yanked about as we do when we're more in our daily life experience. But the world, being in the world, is also a supportive place to do our equanimity practice because we have contact again and again and again with difficulties. Last time I spoke, I talked about my time in India, and I talked about my time in India in relationship to my practice of compassion, and yet my time in India was so much, too, about my practice of equanimity because I was confronted so often with such difficult impressions on my sense doors in every way that I wanted to react, and I wanted to make it different. I didn't want to come into a place of acceptance. And so I worked very much with the equanimity phrases that we are practicing now. My favorite phrase was, no matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And I would say that as I would walk down the street or if I was on the trains or if I was sitting in the chai shops and I would see these very painful things, I would, I would actually repeat the phrase to myself again and again, no matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And when I did that, I could, I, it was like I was pushed back on myself. I had to. I, I couldn't reach out in the way that I wanted to, out of anger and 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 um, self righteousness and uh, uh, indignation and, uh, and aversion. I, I I I wanted things to be otherwise, and I could feel how I wanted to, things to be otherwise. But when I would say the phrases, I, I I would pull back, and it would would cause me to stop. That st- and what stops is that, is that forward motion that wants to make things change, but make things change out of anger, make things change out of my own sense of what I think is needed and what I think is right. And the wisdom, the wisdom and the insight is that these things are, for the most part, out of my control. Especially a country like India. But then again, the whole world, in the condition of the whole world, is so much out of my control. And I would get pushed back, and I could feel my sense of helplessness, and I would get pushed into my sense of helpless, helplessness, and my, my grief, and the um, uh, pain that I couldn't really do what I wanted to do. I wasn't able to do what I wanted to do. And I would see that the equanimity wouldn't necessarily come right away just because I was saying these phrases or I would uh, be able to do this practice, But, but it seemed that the first step was actually feeling deeply my sense of helplessness. And sometimes I mean even last night when I was guiding the, the meditation and I was repeating the phrases that we were doing together, I could feel again that 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 sense of being pushed back where I can't reach out. The equanimity just makes me stop. I just stop and I get still and I get quiet. Equanimity forces a patient acceptance that says, I accept this because it's happening. I accept this because it's happening. It's like we're not necessarily, the first step, we're not looking for things to go away, but actually, we we first need to change our perception. We need to change the way that we're looking at things. And it and it's this shift in our perception that actually releases our hold. It it releases the grasping. Because we see that really there is nothing to that we can hold on to. That deep insight. This patient acceptance is not a passive acceptance a passive acceptance that says, there's nothing I can do, so I better get used to it. This is the way things are, so I just better get used to it being this way. And that throws us into a, a place of hopelessness or a lack of will, a lack of intentionality where we may not even be able to move into some kind of action. Sometimes when I was in in India, I would use the classical phrase to help me with what was happening there. And I would repeat the phrase of all beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend on their actions, not upon my wishes for them. So again, no matter how how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, that's not what's going to do it. And when I would say these words, it was a cause for deep reflection. Deep reflection into what does this mean? What does it really mean when we say that all beings are the owners of their karma? I am the owner of my karma. You are the owner of your karma. This reflection is very important for us. It's like these phrases are there also so we can ref- just keep reflecting on the meaning. What is the meaning of this? This particular one is hard in India because people would say this is happening to them because it's their karma. And, and when people would say that, and you'd hear that a lot, people are in this kind of condition because it's their karma, there's a way that that would just disconnect people. It would disconnect them from the situation and disconnect them from their own heart. It's a very limited view because it's not a view that arises out of insight and wisdom because we don't see in that case the the whole interdependent nature of things, how my action causes an effect on every person in this world. We, We live in a web of interrelated causes. karma means action and that all actions have consequences and that we have a personal responsibility in all of our actions but we also have a collective responsibility and this is the insight into equanimity and karma that says I understand the web of relationship and interconnectedness everything I do matters every thought, every speech, every action. Just as much as it matters that you are here on an intensive retreat, how absolutely significant that is, not just for yourself, but for the good of the whole planet. So when we say the phrases, we get a feeling for what this equanimity is. It, it, it invites us to take a moment and stop. To stop being blind to the way things are in our usual reactivity that we have to the way things are. But just for a few minutes, as we say the phrases, there's the possibility to let things be. Just let things be in this moment. We come back to ourselves because often we can find ourselves being so demanding about how we want things to be. And that is such a strong tendency of the mind, but yet when we practice equanimity, we are invited to come back to the way things are, just like this. If equanimity is not Fully understood, it's possible to fall into what's called the near enemy um, uh, of indifference. And sometimes indifference is even a word that's used for equanimity. It's another word that can be a little bit distracting or confusing. Sometimes equanimity is called an indifference to pleasure and pain. But indifference is actually the near enemy, that which disguises itself as equanimity, because it arises from an attachment to a state of mind that is unengaged, unbothered, yet a kind of denial of life. It contains a fear of engagement, a fear of intimacy, a fear of our humanity. That detachment may give us a temporary sense of peace, yet it reinforces a sense of our separation through withdrawal and disconnection. But true equanimity is not a withdrawal of any kind, but as you can hear in these words, it's a pointing to a full engagement. It has taken me a long time to understand this. I remember for much of the years of my practice, the early years of my practice, I, I would keep asking, where is the, where is the passion in practice? You know, where is the juice in the practice? Because for a, for a while, and not really understanding clearly, it, it just felt like almost a little too dry or a little bit too brittle. One time, Joseph Goldstein said that equanimity is the passion in dispassion. That, that when we really understand equanimity and we come into the engagement, the full engagement with life, that's when we begin to feel the passion. Because true equanimity frees up our energy, we actually feel more energetic because we're not blocked by our habitual patterns of mind. It's the habitual patterns that keep us feeling dry or kind of frozen or somewhat numb from life. But as we begin to free up those patterns, we feel less fear In relationship to what's arising in our mind and our body and our environment, we actually start getting more energy and feel more passion within ourselves. A different kind of passion, not the passion that's usually talked about in terms of lust and craving, but a passion that's more related to creativity and aliveness. When we are caught in our habitual patterns of mind, Consciousness takes the objects of its, of of mind, the mental objects, and glues itself on. There's kind of a gluing onto those objects, which we call identification. It's a way that we kind of get stuck onto the objects without seeing their empty nature, without seeing their fleeting nature without seeing that they are completely unreliable and unstable. When we get stuck in this way or glued onto these objects in this way, the mind can get obsessed with wanting things to stay the same, wanting things to be fixed, wanting things to be solid, not wanting change to happen because that starts to feel too frightening. The Buddha said in one of the te- in his discourses, he says, when we are preoccupied with change, meaning not wanting things to change, wanting things to stay fixed and solid, this brings agitation. Because one's, because one's mind is obsessed, one becomes anxious, distressed, and concerned due to this clinging. That it's actually the clinging on to these objects that create the agitation and the restlessness that we want to get away from, and then looking for more objects or situations that are going to help bring more peace and calm, which is just more grasping and more clinging, more manipulating. This is in a discourse uh, which talks about the agitation through clinging. Buddha, Buddha talks about that this being one of the main. Uh, uh, causes of the agitation that we feel is this getting stuck onto these objects, not seeing clearly what they are. So one of the practices that we do, and one of the, in the one of the ways that we practice in our intensive uh, practice is by directing the mind to investigating impermanence, really looking c- more clearly at the uh, arising and the falling of phenomenon and noticing how we want to get attached or hold on or, or how, how we fall into reactions of grasping and aversion rather than just allowing the phenomena to arise and to pass, arise and pass and arise and pass. When we look at things, and certainly in retreat, we have a chance to look this carefully. We can see this, that everything is in this state of perpetual change, perpetual flow. And rather than to resist this flow and to resist this uh, changing uh, pheno- phenomena, we embrace it, we open to it, we become it, we become the flow. And as we become the flow, we begin to feel the stillness within ourselves, the place that actually is not changing, it's not moving, but the place that is able to witness the changing flow of things. There is a quote, I don't know who, who said this, but that, Life is the ever changing foam that floats upon a sea of silence. Life is the ever changing foam that floats upon a sea of silence. Equanimity is interconnected with all the other Brahma-viharas. They all, all four, pervade and suffuse each other. They all affect each other as we we, uh, explore and examine the way that these Brahma-viharas play out. And equanimity, we might say, the equanimity, I've used this metaphor before, but equanimity is the fairy dust in the other three Brahma-viharas. It's, it's the wisdom element. It's the, it's the aspect that frees us from attachment in the other 3 Brahmaviharas. Equanimity in metta allows us to wish for the happiness of others, ourselves and others, without being lost in craving and attachment. The attachment of a self-possessed love Equanimity in compassion gives us an unwavering courage and fearlessness. It allows us to face the immensity of pain and misery without falling into states of grief and sorrow where we're not so caught in our reactions. And equanimity in compassion brings a patience. It it, it brings that patient acceptance, which can really allow us to do the work that we know that we must do. Equanimity in mudita allows us to feel joy for others without falling into states of envy and jealousy. So it's the equanimity that really anchors us and grounds us that keeps us from falling into these states of attachment. And the other three brahmaviharas bring their qualities to the equanimity brahmavihara compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference. Uh, the, The compassion urges equanimity to enter into the battle, to enter into the world, to not be afraid. Metta gives equanimity its impartiality, so we don't get so caught in the distinctions and of this and that, and I want that, I don't want this, I like this person, I don't like that person. And joy gives equanimity its mild serenity that softens equanimity's sternness. Equanimity that is infused with joy, uh, one person wrote, is like the divine smile on the face of the Buddha, a smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering. The divine smile on the face of the Buddha, that's the joy in the equanimity. So perhaps over this month, you've had a chance to get a feeling for these beautiful qualities of the heart, how they run through the mind, how they run through the the body, the, the, the consciousness, the, the heart. They all come together. They all come together for us as we meet our moment-to-moment experience. the practice of equanimity, which really is the the ground or the the, the anchor to the practices that we've been doing, points us to the ultimate goal of our practice, which is Nibbana, which is sometimes called the the perfect equanimity. The Buddha... Mm said in one of his discourses, he said, any lust, hate, delusion that would give rise to ill will, cruelty, discontent, or aversion have been abandoned by him or her. He didn't say or her, he said by him. (laughs) Cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, done away with so that they are no no longer subject to future arising. This is the attainment of the Arhat. This is the fruition of the path. So we are all on the path. We're all on the path, examining the ways that these difficult mind states arise so that we can find a way to come to rest. That ultimately we can find a way to cut them off at the root. Like a palm stump. I want to end the talk this evening with another poem by Naomi shihab Nye, because in my my reflections on equanimity over these last few days, it it pulls me so deep into a place where I really want to go in myself. The equanimity is such a beautiful, a beautiful expression of being. That quiet, that still, unmoving place of mind and heart, which, which we all long for as a permanent abode, And Naomi Shihab Nye says in this poem, there's one line where she says, you're trying to remember something too important to forget. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. And that line, it seems to just play in my consciousness because it speaks to me right where I am that I'm trying to remember something important to forget. And I feel that that points me to the equanimity, to that stillness within. So I'll just read the poem called The Art of Disappearing. When they say, don't I know you, say no. When they invite you to the party, remember what parties are like before answering. Someone telling you in a loud voice that they once wrote a poem Greasy sausage balls on a paper plate, then reply. If they say, we should get together, say why. It's not that you don't love them anymore. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees, the monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project. It will never be finished. When someone recognizes you in a grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. When someone you haven't seen in ten years appears at the door, don't start singing him all your new songs. You'll never catch up. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. Let's sit for a minute. May all beings find the equanimity that lies deep within their heart and mind. May all beings be released from their suffering.